Now, any of those who have children, uh, for those of us that are older, we can remember when our kids were younger, uh, it's interesting that you'll get parents together and we can talk about our worst stories. And sometimes it's, you know, the unique aspects of our kids. They said this, they did this, the unique way they get in trouble. Uh, a lot of times the worst stories are, you know, things that all kids tend to do. Now, our specifics might be different, but there's certain universal experiences, you know, shared by just about all parents. And one of those, I think, is that anyone who's had children, can, we can rethink about these countless times that we have something that we see our kids doing and we warn them that that behavior is dangerous or that you know, they need to be careful, that it's going to cause some kind of a crisis, some tragedy, and they're, they're going to get in trouble. And we warn them consistently. And yet, in spite of hearing the warning, they continue to do it. They totally ignore us. And um, you know, if you're a parent, you know what I mean. I mean, I can think of, for example, when our kids were really young. Uh, when our previous house, we had our, our house, you know, the driveway went down a hill and kind of spilled into our backyard. And I remember our, our boys uh, loved to get on their bikes and go as fast as they could down that hill. And even, the, you know, there were little three-wheelers and, and they'd go faster and faster and we'd warn them, be careful, you know, because it's, you know, you're going to go too fast, you're going to spill over, you're in concrete, you're going to get hurt. And, uh, and what would they do with their boys? And they would just try to go faster. And sooner or later, you know, they spill over and suddenly they're, you know, come to us crying and they're all scraped up and all. And, and I can think of countless examples. I mean, one, that this is probably something that anyone who has children, you could relate to this one. Okay, if you have your kids that are helping you clear the table and, uh, and, and, and as they're clearing the table, you know, that's part of their job and, and they want to save time. So they decide to stack and as many dishes as bowls and you know, cups on, on there so they have to take fewer trips. And you say, well, be careful stacking. You know, if you stack it too high, it's going to fall over and it's going to make a big mess. And you got to clean up the mess and it's going to take you forever to clean. So what do they do? They continue to stack. And, and they continue to do more and more. And then one of the trips, it's too much. And it all falls over. And it makes this huge mess. And suddenly, there's a major crisis. Now, now what really gets me about these things when they happen is after I've warned them and they've totally ignored my warning and I've told them this is likely to happen and then exactly what I told them was going to happen happens and then suddenly they come to me in tears and they act surprised and, and they're like, they, they're shocked and, and as parents, you know, I said, didn't I warn you? Uh-huh. So why did you do it? I don't know. You know, and I'm, I want to say, who does? You know, who should I ask? Who made these decisions? And the fact of the matter is, I do know why they did that. Because at the moment that they made the decision, they didn't believe our warning. I mean, I think about our little boys racing down the driveway. I mean, I could sit there and say, be careful because, you know, you're going to go too fast. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna crash and you're going to, you know, skin your knees. You're going to get hurt. And it's almost like my boy, they didn't say this, but in their actions, they're looking at me and they're saying, Dear Father, I know you mean well, uh, but your warning about kids going too fast and crashing and getting hurt, that's for mere mortals. You don't understand. I have my Superman suit on that you gave me for Christmas, and that's not going to happen to me. You know, or I, you know, I can carry these things. Basically, their actions are saying, I don't believe you. Even as something, something as simple as you've got an in, you know, toddler and you're saying, don't touch the stove, it's hot, you're going to get burnt. Now, deep down, there's something in their mind that's saying, 
I don't believe this is going to hurt. I believe it's going to bring some physical pleasure. So therefore, I, because I don't believe you, I have to touch it and find out for myself. Now, when you look at that, you say, you know, as parents, what's wrong? You know, and that, that's always the core behind the action. Now, we don't get angry. It's not like we blow up and, you know, we, in a sense, say we warn and then you feel bad and we, we help them, but that's the consequence of what you chose to do. See, they're at their core saying, I don't think you know what's best. I think I know what's best. In fact, Dad, you're giving me these rules, and, and you're probably keeping me from what is really the most fun. Now, we see that with our children, but is that limited to kids? Or isn't that the exact same thing that we do in our relationship with God? When we see that God has given us certain warnings, certain truths, certain moral concepts, and, and when we ignore that, basically we're just being like that little preschooler, that little toddler that is saying, God, I, I don't believe you. I, I don't believe you know what's best, or, or no, this is really something pleasurable that you're keeping from me. Now, we've been in, in our church, been looking at this section in Ephesians 4 and 5 where Paul is really redefining the concept of morality. And, and it's summed up in verses 22 through 24 of, verse four, of chapter 4, where he uses the illustration of clothing to illustrate the idea. He calls us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, what he's saying is that all of us had an old self, that before Christ we walked and we looked like you know, the rest of the world, and, and we wore that, that uh, morality almost like a set of clothing, that people saw that. It was just, it fit comfortably. And he calls us to take off the old self, but that's just the start. Now, many people stop there. They think that's what biblical morality is. It's a set of rules. Here are the things that are wrong, and you don't do the wrong things. And, and many people define it that way, but that's not the heart of the Bible's teaching about moral truth. It's not just what we take off. It's ultimately what we put on. See, what we take off is focused on our behavior. Putting on is focusing on not just our behavior, but our character. That we put on a renewed spirit of our mind, that we, this new self created after the likeness of Christ. That we become like him, we have this character. And, and ultimately, if we have this character, the old clothing, the old behaviors don't fit anymore. We're wearing something new. And so Paul introduces this idea, and we've seen in last weeks, he then illustrates it and applies it towards numerous areas of life, calling us to take off you know, lying and to put on honesty, taking off anger and putting on forgiveness, taking off stealing and putting on generosity, taking off speech that tears other people down and putting on speech that builds other people up. And, and now he gets to the issue of our sexuality, calling us to take off sexual morality and, and impurity. Now, even before we dig deep into this, I'm just going to plant a seed in your mind and ask you to think about it. Now, as I mentioned, everything in here is about taking something off and then putting on righteousness, taking off a sin and putting on character of righteousness. If we take off sexual immorality, what do you think we're called to put on? Now, some people might think, well, sexual purity and, or marriage. Or, well, that's kind of still taking off. That's what we don't do. What is the character trait that he's called us to put on? And I'll tell you, it's something that's a little surprising, but we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But let's start by looking what he calls us to take off. 
Again, verse 3, but sexual morality and impurity and, uh, or covetousness must not even be named amongst you as is proper amongst the saints. Now, the word here translated sexual morality is the Greek word pornia, from which we get pornographic. And it's a, a, a very broad word. You see, the Bible teaches that God has created sex as this wonderful gift. It's a binding act that a man and woman who are married in the covenant of marriage are able to enjoy, and in a sense, it binds us together. It's something that's a powerful, lifelong, binding thing. And this word pornea is speaking about this broad word that's any sexual activity outside of that, of that, God, of that design. And so it's, you know, all, so it's, obviously it's adultery where one or more married or fornication where neither are married or, but, but any kind of sexual activity. And, and sometimes, especially in our culture, we often have people that come back and say, well, what about this? Is this specifically mentioned in the Bible? Well, the next thing that he says broadens it. He says, not only sexual morality, but if you want to be sure, in any impurity. So anything that's impure before God. And so a great example of where we struggle with this in our culture is pornography. I mean, that's something that many people struggle. And I've heard some people argue, well, it's really not wrong. It's, I'm not committing an act of, 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 of you know, fornication or of adultery. Or, well, it's impurity. It's in our mind chasing after impure thoughts. And it's something that many people struggle but, with, but we're having to see that God's saying, no, that, that doesn't belong in the life of a Christian. If that's part of our life, then God's trying to get, get, you know, confront us on that. Or what I've seen, too, amongst some who are single that I'll have a common question I'll hear about people that are single and they start dating and they start saying, well, but how far is too far? We hear this all the time. How far is too far to go? How far can I go without sinning? And, um, and now I will start by saying, even what does it say here? There shouldn't be a hint of impurity. So it's probably, the line is probably further back than he would, would think it would be. But even the question, I want you to think about that question, if you've ever thought that. When you say, how far can I go without sinning, what you're really saying is, how close to sin can I get without getting polluted by sin? My goal is to get as close to sin as I can without sinning. Now, is that the kind of question, is that how we should be thinking about this whole issue of sexuality? No, no, God calls us to get close to him. He wants me to have the right character where I'm not trying to say, how, I want to get as close to sin without. No, I want to be, I want to be close to him. I want to honor him with my body. And even in dating and in marriage, we can do all that. So, so he's called us to this whole idea of purity, which is radically different than our culture. That's different than our culture, but it was different than the culture that he's writing to as well. You see, when we think about Ephesians, he's writing to people in the city of Ephesus. And it was a culture that is much like ours. See, a key part of it is a key, you know, when you think of Ephesus, for the people then, you would think this ultimate source of pride, and actually a major source of income was the temple to this goddess Artemis. She was the fertility god. And, uh, and, and many of us may not know Artemis. You might know her by her Roman name, Diana, and the, so the god of love, the fertility goddess. And her temple was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was enormous. It was bigger than a football field, over 200, you know, uh, uh, 220 feet high. This is a picture of the runes, but, the, but historians have said, okay, this is probably what it looked like at the time of uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. It was this enormous thing. And much of the city's fame and income was related to this temple. People would just travel all over from the world to come to this temple. And uh, if you would ask someone, you know, what do you know about Ephesus? First thing they would say is, oh, that's where the temple of Artemis is. 
Now, one of the reasons that this related to sexuality, because she was the fertility goddess, the worship of her in a ritualistic worship was that you would go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and then have sex with a shrine prostitute. That was their style of worship. And, and I think you can hear you know, that description and you could see why she was a popular goddess and a lot of people traveled to that kind of worship. It's kind of like in the secular world, people said, hey, you know, that's worship, that's good. And, and, and it was, that defined the city. In fact, if I've even thought about, okay, what would be as a relevant uh, parallel to today, the closest I could even think of would be something like Las Vegas. You know, it's like, that's what's known for. You go there to party. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And, and it, it, that was the city, what it was known for. And this was, what, this was what Ephesus was known for. And now you've got to realize if the city's reputation and income was built around this glorification of sex, it shouldn't be surprising that the perversion of sex moved beyond the temple into the culture. So the city itself was defined by that. And, and that sounds familiar. I mean, our culture is, is all about the glorification of sex and celebration of sex. And so that now even things that, you know, a generation ago that people would have said, oh, that's clearly wrong. Well, now in our culture, it's, well, that's something we should be proud of. That's something we should celebrate. That's something our, our culture has totally changed. And it's not only a question of now if the world accepts this sexual morality as normative, but as followers of Christ, how does that impact us? And the danger that I think Paul is dealing with here to the people in Ephesus and to us is we've got to realize that because we live in this culture, we've got to be careful that we don't start to adapt some of the moral values of, of our time. That we don't think that purity is, you know, it's tempting to think that purity is just to be a little, not as bad as the rest of the culture. We don't define purity as being right before God by his standards. So it's in that context that Paul says in verse three, to a culture like our own, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named amongst you. Now, does that mean that God is anti-sex? No, not at all. You know, God's the one who invented sex. He created it in the very beginning. He's the one that made it pleasurable, that he, you know, that he calls us to enjoy it. But he created it as something, this wonderful gift that is to be enjoyed only within the covenant of marriage, of a lifelong commitment. And it's not that sex is in any way bad, but it's something that is good. And God's saying, okay, here's what happens is that Satan is gonna try to take what I created good and he's gonna try to twist it and pervert it and so that it tries to fit our desires. But the more that we work outside of God's design, the more broken it becomes and the more we, broken we become as we chase after it. Now, the fact is, is that even as we pursue this thing that's good, we live in a world where we've all been impacted by the brokenness, all of us experience some brokenness on this whole issue of sexuality. And even when we say, how do I build what's good? I don't know how to do that. And, uh, and, and let me give you a little um, advanced plug for something coming up uh, this fall. Many of you might be familiar with Julie Slattery, uh, who's uh, my sister. She's a nationally known author, speaker, uh, head of Authentic Intimacy. And they're going to be doing this national conference in October, and it's just, because she lives here, it's, they're gonna do it at Grace Church in Middleburg Heights, so it's in this area. But it's about reclaiming our sexuality. And this idea of how do we reclaim this thing that, that, uh, that God created to be good, how do we make it good? And, and for, for all of us, because we all bring you know, uh, baggage to, to it, whether we're single, whether we're married, wherever we're at, we've all got baggage. 
And it's not just, oh, keep it in these boxes. It's how do I take all this baggage, unpack it, let God redeem it, reclaim this thing that God says is good. This, you know, the church is not about, hey, this is a bad thing. This is a good thing we want to reclaim. And I'd encourage you to, you know, put this date on your calendar. We'll talk more about it as a church as we get closer to it. But I highly recommend this as a great event uh, to help you think through this issue. But Satan loves to take God's good gifts and distort them. And, and we need to understand not only the distortion, but we need to understand why it works in our life. What is it about our heart, the heart issue, that, that makes ourselves vulnerable to this temptation that drives the actions? Look at again what God teaches in verse 3. But sexual immorality or all in, uh, and all impurity or covetousness might not, must not even be named amongst you. Now, what, what's really interesting, that what does covetousness have to do with sexual immorality and purity? He's talking about sexual purity. Covetousness, you know, we think that's this greed for stuff, this pursuit of stuff. And not only that, but he says impurity or covetousness, in a sense saying impurity and covetousness are the same thing. Now, now here's what you need to realize. When we think of a covetousness, we think of the greed for stuff. The word that he's talking about doesn't mean that we desire things, but that we desire more. We desire, we desire more than God has given us. So I'm not happy with my situation. I'm not happy with the God restrictions or God rules that God has, so I want more. Sexual temptation is rooted in covetous desires. It's always rooted in the desire for more, of going outside. And, and sometimes I can even look and I say, well, I know the God's word. I talk to people all the time. I know God says it's wrong. And, and, and I, I know in the past that this is harmful, and, but... Yet, be, I, I, I have this desire, and, and somehow now I try to justify it. Because what happens is we get blinded by the desire, and that desire becomes more real to us than the warning, than the trap. Let me, I found a, a, a simple illustration of this. It was, many of you might remember the movie Up, and this was a little clip from actually the extras from that movie. But it's this whole idea of desiring something, even though we know it's dangerous and yet we still can't stop ourselves. Russell, what are you doing? I'm making an official wilderness explorer snipe trap. And as soon as a snipe steps right... Oh. Help! Thanks again for saving my life, Mr. Fredrickson. And now for the perfect snipe bait. No animal in the entire universe can resist chocolate. Oh! Help! It looks so... Chocolatey. Russell, if you... Maybe if I'm really quick. Wait, wait. Oh. <laughs> oh. You want some? <laughs> you look at that, and, I, and I, I think what... Look at that. I can know there's a trap. I can know the warnings that are there, but deep down I think the trap isn't going to get me. Or my desire for the candy bar is greater than my fear of the trap. And, and that's true of all of us. You know, we can look at these and so often, okay, why is it? I know that the God said this, I know that it's, but why do we sin? Because I desire what I don't have. And I look at God's restrictions and I say, well, God, but you're keeping something from me and I have to go outside of those restrictions to get what I think that I need. And, and, I, and I, I know there's a, you know, but the fact is my desire is more real to me than my fear of the trap or my fear of what you've said. That's why we do. But ultimately, it's not only a fear, it's even more a distrust, a distrust of God, a distrust of his love. 
So it's not just, just a matter of even being content with what we have and, okay, I tried, to, tried harder to be content. Ultimately, that's going to fail. Ultimately, we struggle with this because we, we distrust God. See, if I knew and really believe that God is loving and that God is powerful and that it's God, God is my good Father and that he gives me what is best, then I'm going to look at his restrictions and I'm going to say, no, I want to stay in that because I know it's for my good. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, no, I have to go outside of that because I really don't trust that what God has said is for my best. I think I know better. James talks about this in James chapter 1. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And what it's saying here is we've got to realize that, you know, that we need to believe the right things about God. Don't be deceived. We're deceived about the character of God. If I believe the wrong things about God, I'm going to believe the wrong thing about a lot of things. I'm going to believe the wrong thing about everything that God speaks about. See, he's not only teaching that God is the source of every good gift that we have, that if you have something good, give thanks to God because God gave it to you. He's not only teaching that. He's teaching that God's nature is good. And because God's nature is loving and powerful, then anything that he knows that is good for us, he will give it to us. Now, it doesn't mean that he gives us everything we want. It doesn't mean that we, he gives us everything that we think we need or when we think we need it. No, it means that he's looking at it and saying, I know you think you need this, but I know better than you. And, and if you really needed it, if it was really right for you now, I would give it. But he's the giver of every good gift. That's his character. There's nothing good that God is going to withhold. But all of Satan's temptation is deceiving us on this point. It's all coming and saying, no, God really isn't good. He's, he's keeping something best, you know, best. He's holding back from you. It's all something that comes from doubting God's love. And then when we doubt his love, we suspect his provision. See, if I really believe that God was loving and powerful and gave me everything that was best, then I'm going to look at what he's given me and be content with it. I'm going to look at even the guidelines that he's given. And I may not always understand it, but I'm going to submit to it because I believe it's what's best for me. But why do I not? Because I really don't believe him. That's what Ephesians 5 is teaching. That's, that's what he's teaching specifically here in our area of sexuality. See, it's not only rooted in our discontentment in our single situation. You know, if we're single, I want to be married. If I'm married, I, you know, I want to be, you know, I'm not content with the spouse that I have. And, uh, but it's ultimately saying, you know, I know that whatever God you've said here, and you've got this plan, but you don't know what's best for me. You know, you don't know. You know, I, I've got to go outside of that. You know what we're doing is we're doing the same thing that our kids do to us. When we look at our young kids and they're, we're, so here's a warning and they just continue to, you know, they disobey and they're really saying, Dad, you don't know what's best. We're doing that exact same thing to God. We're just as foolish as our little kids. They're saying, hey, we can go as fast as we want down the driveway and we're not going to fall. I can go as fast as I want down this path. It's not going to impact me. They don't believe us. We don't believe God. See, ultimately what we need is not just, it's not just doing. God's calling us to this relationship with him to say, I need to learn to trust him. I need to trust who he is. See, it's not only this, but if you go even deeper, it's not only just trust of God, but he continues to say it's ultimately rooted in what he calls idolatry. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual and moral or pure or is covetous, that is an idolater. So it's saying, okay, these things are 
are at the core, it's not only covetous, it's when we're doing that in idolatry, well, that's putting another, you know, it's worshiping another God. And um, now when he says he has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you struggle with these things, you can't be saved. What it's saying is that if our life is consistently defined by certain patterns, where we consistently say, you know, I'm pursuing things that I know that God says are wrong, and that's part of my life, I don't, you know, I'm just ignoring God's direction, Basically, God's saying that reveals something in our heart. See, salvation is a matter of the heart. It's not what we do. It's not if I kept the rules. God's saying, you know, it's, it's a matter of heart. Nor is it just saying a prayer or I go to church. God's saying, have you surrendered to me in your heart? See, ultimately, it's coming and admitting that I'm a sinner. Not only have I done wrong things, but before God, at the core of my sin, it's my being my own God. I get to determine what's right and wrong. God, I'm going to set my own rules. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to obey myself. And so confession is ultimately saying, God, I agree with you that I've not only sinned, but that I've, I've been my own God. I've played God in my own role, in my own heart. And it's wrong, and I ask you to forgive me. See, sexual immorality, what's the true problem? It's not just what we do. It's the lifestyle is revealing that basically if I continue to go against what I know God is saying, I'm basically saying, God, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to live by my own guidelines. And ultimately, it's saying, this is my God. I'm my, I am my own God, and I'm going to pursue sex as the thing that I think is, or relationships as the thing that I think is going to satisfy me. So we often look at the rules that we, um, you know, obey and say, well, I can do this. And, but even here, where we surrender, it's like, okay, what are the things that we surrendered, or, you know, how do we surrender the things that we struggle with? It's not like, well, here's the rule I'm keeping. Here's what I'm doing. God's pointing and saying, okay, what is hard for you? What's tempting? See, it's our actions that reveal our heart. Why? Because what it's at the core, we sin, all this is saying we sin because we don't trust God. At the end of the day, why do I sin? Why do I do wrong things? Because I don't trust God. I, I don't trust that God is giving me what is really good. I don't trust his heart and his character. And because I don't trust him, Therefore, we refuse to put him on our heart's throne. We refuse to make him God, the leader of our life. And, um, and the thing is that if we can say, well, I've submitted here and here, and often we point to the things that are easy for us, and, and God says, well, no, have you submitted there? And, and one of the hardest areas is this area of relationships, you know, is sexual, is, uh, sexual intimacy, this idea that, you know, physical pleasure, this relationship, I believe that that's going to fulfill me. And God says, no. No, it's ultimately, are you willing to put me first and trust me, obey me, and believe that I really am good, that I'm going to love you? If you really believe that, then you're going to follow my guidelines. Now, this doesn't mean, again, that it's, okay, if you do this, then you're saved by what we do. No, it's, it's, we're not saved by what we do. This is a heart attitude. But if my, heart, my actions are wrong, it reveals something is wrong in my heart. But at the end of the day, I come and I say, God, here's my mess. You know, here's, I can, I don't, don't clean up to come to God. You don't do that. You come to God as you are. You come with all your mess, say, God, here's my mess. I need you to change me. But if I come to God and ask him to clean me up, you realize he's not going to leave you that way. He loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so he's going to change us. He's going to change not only our behavior, but ultimately our character. Now, I asked you beforehand, what do you think is the opposite of sexual immorality? What's the positive that God calls us to put on? Now look at verses three and four, and you see it here, and this is surprising. 
But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named amongst you as is proper amongst saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. That's what we all, we take off. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What we put on is thanksgiving. The opposite, the character trait that he calls us put on is the character of thanksgiving. Now, at first, this can seem really surprising. What does thanksgiving have to do with sexual morality? You know, how is, I mean, it, those things seem to be unrelated. Well, for starters, let's go back to verse 3, and we saw that what is the core problem? Covetousness. And what is covetousness? Covetousness is saying this belief that I don't believe that God is, I want more. God hasn't given me what I need, so I have to go outside of his provision to seek more. What is thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is to say, I believe I have a good God who has given me everything, every good and perfect gift. And so I want to be thankful for what he's given me. See, discontentment is at the root of all sin. It's, a, it's, it's this lie that God doesn't want what's best for us. And specifically, he's talking here Thanksgiving in our relationships and our attitudes towards sex and sexuality. And uh, we should live in a, in, a, in a sense, in a sense, God, I'm thankful for what I have. This is something you've given, which is good and beautiful, and we celebrate it. And, um, and it's, it's wonderful within its proper bounds. It's this, but it's a thanksgiving that flows from faith and contentment in who God is, in, in, in faith in his character and contentment in his, in his provision. Now, now, some people might say, well, okay, wait a second. That's easy for you to say. You're married. You know, if you're married, then you have the opportunity. You're happily married. You have the opportunity to act on that. And, well, but I'm, I'm you know, high school or young, young adult or, you know, I'm divorced and, and I'm not married now. And so how can I be thankful for what I can't enjoy? And, and you know, that doesn't make sense. I don't have a sexual relationship to be thankful for. No, the message is still to put on thankfulness. And, and I can speak as a guy that didn't get married until I was 27 that that was still what God was calling me to. Why? Because even in this, when we say that, here's the lie that we're buying. I need a relationship to be happy. I need, I need to be married. I need a person. I need this sexual relationship. I need that to be happy. And, and unless I have that, unless God gives me that, I cannot be full. My life is going to be empty. Now, I don't in any way want to downplay the importance of that, those relationships, but in essence, when we're doing that, we're making the pursuit of that relationship or sexuality our God. We're asking that to fill the God space in our life. And what God is calling us to is to say, no, I want to be the one that fills the deepest need. Trust me. Let me fill that need. And, and what you're going to find is that if you're in that single spot, or even if you're struggling within your marriage, be content with where you're at. God's saying, help me to live and be content here. And what you're going to find is that if you find that contentment here, God will prepare you for other blessings yet down the road. See, ultimately, the key of this is finding confidence in God's character. It's not just about doing. It's not about rules. It's not about don't do this, do this. It's ultimately confidence in God's character. Look at verse 6. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. We read a few moments ago in James 1. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Now, why is it this, I'm talking about this issue, talking about deception? You see, because that's Satan's strategy. You want to see how deep the strategy is? Go all the way back to Genesis 3. Go to the Garden of Eden. Go to the fall. Adam and Eve taking the apple. Okay, what happened there? How did Satan tempt Eve? He looked, he came to her and he said, okay, God gave you the garden. You got all these trees to eat from. Now, Eve, he told you that one, you're not allowed to eat, right? That's the best one. 
It, don't look at all the things that he's given you and enjoy, these good and perfect gifts. Look at the one that he said no to. That's what's best. See, God isn't good. God hasn't given you everything you need. God's holding back the thing you really need. And so it was this lie about the character of God. And so Eve says at the core, God, I don't believe you. You said that this would kill me. You said this was very you know, bad. I don't believe you. So I'm going to go outside of your, your provision, and I'm going to doubt God's character, and then I'm going I'm to break his rule. My friends, in the same way, again, that's what we do. We're, we're just like that little child that when we look at and just, you know, says, that's going to hurt you. No, it's not going to hurt me. Or no, I'm, I'm so focused on enjoying that moment that I think I can do whatever I want without consequence. And just as our kids look silly, we look that silly before God. And the consequences are just as certain. Why do, why do we do it? We doubt God. But even as we doubt God, we've got to say, okay, part of the goal then is thankfulness, but that's going to be rooted in coming back to the truth. We've got to fight this deception with the truth. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. First of all, let no one deceive you. This was written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, God was concerned about his people being deceived. He's looking at saying, you live in a culture where this view of sexual morality is very different, and it's not just what people are doing. They're arguing for it. They're, they're making an argument, and, and you've got to realize that it's this value system that it's easy to, that's convincing people. Be careful. Don't be deceived. And if that was true 2,000 years ago, it's even more true today. Because our culture is not only pushing it in the culture, it's pushing it through the media, it's pushing it, you know, in, in every segment of our culture, through the schools and through the stories we tell through TV and, and, um, and in the movies and, and through our social media, through everything, it's celebrating this. And so this warning that he gave 2,000 years ago, don't be deceived, be on the guard. Don't buy the lies. Be careful. That's just as relevant for us today. And what about this part of the verse that says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sin of disobedience. Now that, we'll tell you, that sounds harsh. It sounds condemning. And I know sometimes you could have, I've been at churches where it's like, okay, well, they'll preach against people that are doing this or that. When you look at the whole of Ephesians, that's not the heart of God here. See, it's not a statement about God's anger. It's not about, boy, if you cross this line, God's angry and he wants to slap you, he wants to beat you down. That's not what it's saying. It's a statement about God's compassion, about his grace. It's a statement about seeing God's, the truth of God's design and the natural consequences that come from breaking that design. See, God's design for marriage is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful blessing that he wants us to enjoy. He, it's, it's this incredible sex and sexuality is this beautiful thing when we enjoy it within that design. But when we pursue our sexuality outside of God's design, what's going to happen is we start to twist it and the result will always be brokenness. So let's say, for example, if I choose to pursue an adulterous affair, and if I choose to pursue that, okay, it's outside of God's design, and maybe I'm not happy with, what, you know, with my wife, and suddenly I think, okay, I've got to go outside. And now, it's going to bring tremendous damage and destruction. There will be you know, pleasure for a moment, but ultimately it will be you know, incredible. Now, beyond the wrath of my wife, which would be very real, um, you, know, you might say, okay, do I feel the wrath of God? Well, this passage says yes, but what is that wrath? Is it that God is angry and wants to you know, knock me down? 
No, that wrath is primarily natural consequences. God said, here's the design, and if you break the design, then you're going to experience the consequences. So if I suddenly say, I pursue this adulterous affair, I'm gonna break 30 years of trust that I have with my wife. I'm gonna do incredible damage to my marriage, possibly irreparable damage. I'm gonna do incredible damage to my relationship with my kids, my son-in-law, possibly future grandkids. I'm gonna forever lose their respect in their eyes. I'm gonna forfeit much of the influence that I've, that I've gained over 30 years of you know, raising them. It's gonna impact me in countless other ways. But the consequence that I face wouldn't be because God's mad at me and trying to punish me and trying to hurt me. No, it's gonna be the natural consequences. God is saying, don't run down the driveway. If you, you, know, if you stack too many plates, it's gonna fall. It's gonna make a mess. The same thing here. Or another simplistic illustration. You know, let's say, okay, we have cars and we have gas tanks and we're still like, man, it's getting so expensive. I think, uh, you know, I, I think if I go to the store and get a thing of log cabin syrup, it looks kind of like gasoline. I can pour it in there. It's got a lot of calories. It's got a, if I pour it in there, it's gonna make my car work. Now, is it gonna work real well? You could say if you do that, you're going to face the wrath of the designers of the car. Why? Because you could, all your hopes, all your faith, all your, you know, your belief that that's going to work isn't going to change what is designed. And it's not like anybody's going to be mad at you, but because the car is designed that way, you put maple syrup in your gas tank, it's going to do incredible damage and it's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of time to fix. Now, this is simplistic, but that's the idea that God is teaching us here. God's in, designed us to enjoy this incredible blessing, and when we try to change our, that design, when we try to go outside of it, it's just as silly as putting you know, maple syrup in our gas tank and thinking it's gonna work. Just in the same way, it's gonna do damage to our hearts and to others as well. But God not only wants us to see that his, his, the truth about his design and consequences, he's also t- calling us to see the truth about his grace and his blessings. See, in this whole passage, when you see it in the context of everything that he says in Ephesians, he's not saying, if you do this, you're condemned. You know, Ephesians has all been about God's grace and forgiveness and people saying, this is what you used to be and, and you were slaves to sin and God's forgiven you and this is now God has made you a child of him and he's making you holy and he's changing your life and, and it's all about him changing us. In this, he gives us these warnings about, okay, God's wrath. Why? Because he's warning us, don't go down this. Don't stack all the plates. They're going to fall over. Don't go down, you know, go head first, you know, down this hill. You're going to crash. You're going to get hurt. And that's what the warning is. And he warns us, and he said, okay, I'm warning you, but if you've done that in the past, even if you're there now, see, it's not that I condemn you, I reject you. I'm warning you so I can invite you to grace and forgiveness. Because no matter what mistakes that we've made, no matter what brokenness that we bring to the table, you see, we're not beyond God's grace. We're not beyond his forgiveness. We're not beyond his healing. And so he invites each one of us, and again, whether it's where we're in now and we realize that what we're doing now is wrong or whether you know, it's something in our past and we bear these scars, he's calling each one of us to come to him and say, God, here I come and I bring it to you. That doesn't mean that if I surrender something that everything is instantly fixed. I could have made really bad decisions in the past. I surrender. I'm still going to deal with some of the consequences, some of the scars. But you know, what happens at the moment that I do that, God says, okay, I could forgive you. I make you right with me. I'm going to try to help you teach, you, teach you to put on true righteousness, change you going forward. And as, as I change you going forward, then that grace is going to start to bleed into the, bass, the past and bring healing to where there's brokenness. 
My friends, God calls us to be radically different. He calls us to be people who are not like the world, that, not, that we're not defined by the values of the world around us. But even as we're called to be different because we live in this world, we're all impacted by it. And on this issue, we're all broken. And even now, there are many of us that are struggling, and whether whatever level of, of you know, sexual morality, impurity, pornography, whatever that is you're struggling now, God's saying, no, I want to heal you from that. I want to change you. And no matter what you've dealt with in the past, whatever scars, whatever brokenness, don't continue to bring those forward. Don't continue to, you know, kind of build on that. No, I want to heal that. I want to, I want to come, come before me. I want to heal it. And it's not only coming before him, finding things like this Reclaim Conference, some great books, some great resources that say, you know, God can take this wonderful thing that he's created. And it's not about the no's. It's not about the don'ts. It's about, no, I want to reclaim this and redeem it and make it beautiful in your life, no matter what state of life you're in right now. My friends, I pray that each one of us, no matter where we're at, say, God, help me to take off not only the sexual morality, the impurity, the deceptions that come with that, the distrust of your character. Help me to trust you, Father, to put on thankfulness, to be someone who's radically different because I live out my beliefs.